Well, sure it's nice to see all of you tonight. Good evening. Okay. You know, we're not, you're not going to make much of a Christian witness out there during the week if every time somebody says good evening to you or good morning, you don't respond. So we're starting at the very basics, aren't we, here, in terms of Christ-likeness. All right, if you're with us, let's, uh, you are with us. Let's, uh, we've confirmed that now. Proverbs chapter 26 tonight. Guys, don't move down the aisles just yet. If you're here tonight and you don't have a Bible, these gentlemen are coming up the aisles with Bibles. Just wave and they'll get a Bible into your hands. You'll want to follow along by reading the Word uh, with us on Sunday night. And so uh, please avail yourself of a Bible. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. Proverbs chapter 26. We pick up things tonight in verse 18. Like a madman who throws firebrands, shoots arrows. It's kind of like a berserk uh, archer and uh, uh, deaf. In other words, a crazy madman who hurts and endangers people is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. So this refers to the person who deceives or he betrays his neighbor. And then when he gets busted for... Uh, having tried to do harm to his neighbor, uh, then he tries to smooth things over or defend himself by saying, I was only kidding, I was only joking. And so the teaching of the proverb is that these kind of people, they really do a lot of harm uh, and they uh, shouldn't be allowed to get off the hook with a lie. People reveal themselves to be who and what they are by virtue of their actions. And uh, so that kind of person should be recognized your neighbor within a neighborhood or whatever is being a troublemaker. And the Bible says, as Jesus said, we're to be harmless as doves in our contact with other people, but we are to be wise as serpents and understand who and what we're dealing with when we're dealing with other people. And unfortunately, there are these kind of people, and there's nothing wrong with recognizing them for who, uh, what they are, and then setting perimeters on uh, that relationship. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no tailbearer, strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man uh, to kindle strife. And so you remove wood from a fire and what happens? It dies out. The fire goes out. And you remove gossip or a tailbearer. Uh, from a situation uh, or a relationship from your life, and then strife will cease. And so the solution to a lot of strife, a lot of uh, just a lot of junk that we carry in life that there really isn't no need, to, no need to be carrying. There's enough conflict in life without having contentious, strife-filled people uh, unnecessarily a part of, of our life. And the solution to it is just simply to remove the voice of gossip or the contentious person that's always trying to pit people against one another by what they tell us and all. Don't listen to them. And in fact, we are to separate ourselves from that kind of person. So God may speak to somebody here tonight. you got a situation you are sinking under the weight of this relationship, the gossip, the slander, the maliciousness. I mean, it's just killing you uh, what comes out of that relationship and uh, the Lord says through the book of Proverbs here the wisdom that the solution to that 
is if that person isn't willing to change, is just to eliminate that relationship uh, from your life. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles, um, like little pieces of seized candy. Those caramels right there where they got the marshmallow on top and they're perfectly round. And you get the box from there and there's only two of them. There's like a fight for those two. Just buy a whole box of those if you can. So the words of a talebearer, gossip, man, our flesh just loves it. We love to listen to that. Our flesh is so ugly, what it craves and what it likes. The problem is, is that those uh, pieces of gossip, they go down into the inmost body. And we saw this proverb repeated again from chapter 18, verse 8. And uh, the problem with gossip is it does get digested. It becomes a part of us. You ever had somebody tell you something and you say, you walk away from it and you just go, I wish I'd never heard that. I, I, wish, I, I wish I did not know what they just told me, even if it's the truth. And sometimes, I mean, it can be so difficult, you'll just stop the person in mid-sentence, which is the best thing to do, and just say, I don't want to know that. I don't want that inside of me to process. And there's nothing wrong with that. It goes into the innermost body, and it just does harm inside of us. Fervent lips with a wicked heart are like earthenware covered with silver dross. And so you take a plain kind of terracotta pot, you know, here it is, spring is coming and summer's right around the corner, and so you buy outdoor pots. Some of them are very fancy and glazed, and, uh, but most of them are just terracotta. They're just pot, uh, you know, cheap kind of pot, a cheap kind of uh, clay. So you can cover a terracotta pot with silver, and by doing that you can hide what is on the inside. The silver disguises the fact that it's just this drab, worthless kind of a pot underneath, and Solomon is saying that in the same way a person uh, fervently uh, expresses their love for us, uh, and but underneath the surface they have a heart that's filled with wickedness. And uh, sometimes it's like that. So they look one way, but in their heart, and all they think is ill toward us. Of course, the worst example, in um, certainly in the Bible, probably in Maybe in all of human history is Judas Iscariot who betrays Jesus with a kiss. I mean, he just kept hidden what the real condition of his heart was by giving the appearance of loving him and all, and yet he was going to betray him for 30 lousy pieces of silver. Verse 24, he who hates disguises it with his lips. Is not very often you have somebody come up and go, you know, I just wanted to tell you I hate you. But just because nobody does it doesn't mean that nobody hates you. you know, people do hate us sometimes. And, uh, and, and as the world gets baser and baser, even as a Christian, they'll hate us for the positions that we take. But for the most part, he who hates, those folks are pretty good at disguising it with their lips and lays up deceit within himself. And so the person hates us, but he flatters us uh, to our face, you know, uh, but and uh, in, in it's just speaking about the craftiness of, of a hypocrite. In verse 25, then when he speaks kindly, 
you know, caringly to you. Don't believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred is covered by deceit, doesn't let us see the hatred, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. And so ultimately, the Bible says that whatever is in our heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If it's in our heart, it's going to come out of our mouth sooner or later. If it's in our heart, it's going to come out of our lives sooner or later. So no matter what this kind of person does to hide it, Nobody has that kind of self-control that ultimately it doesn't spill out. Certainly a person who hates doesn't have the control of the Holy Spirit. So sooner or later he'll expose himself for what he really is, and uh, it'll be to his shame and to his embarrassment that he was playing this hypocrite for so long when he hated uh, all of of the time. You can't uh, wear a mask or be a hypocrite indefinitely. Uh, We always end up being outed. Verse 27, whoever digs a pit, and the idea is in order to trap somebody, will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, and the idea is rolling a big stone uphill, will have it roll back on him. And so the idea is don't plot evil against other people, otherwise that thing is going to backfire and come back on you. We think about Haman and Mordecai and um, the book uh, of Esther, where uh, Haman builds this big gallow in order, gallows in order to uh, have this public hanging of uh, Mordecai, and ultimately he ends up being hung upon uh, the gallows. We call that poetic justice, and uh, we don't always get to see justice this side of heaven, but ultimately everything will be handled in a in a just. Uh, way, if not in this life, in the judgment to come. Uh, so not to be treating people in this kind of way. A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth, somebody who flatters in order to get gain from you or you know, to separate you from your money or they're hiding their true feelings, a flattering mouth works ruin. And so this proverb is a... Uh, uh, condemnation of lying in all of its forms, whether it's just the out-and-out lying to a person or it, it, it is giving the appearance of, you know, in the form of flattery when it, it is, uh, uh, I'm flattering a person in order to get something from them or to gain some advantage over them. Condemnation of lying in all of its forms. Lying is so... Um, uh, uh, everywhere now within the culture and so accepted within the culture. It's like profanity. It's just accepted within the culture. It's everywhere in an epidemic kind of measure. And uh, we have to stop ourselves, let the Word of God say, well, wait a second. Am I starting to tell white lies, so to speak? There are no white lies, by the way. <laughs> we don't really categorize them. Um, is, am I lying? Am I exaggerating? Am I whatever? N- wisdom is have nothing to do with lying in any of its uh, forms. Chapter 27, verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what... Uh, a day may bring forth. And so it reminds us of the fact that nobody is guaranteed tomorrow. The New Testament equivalent of this verse is in the book of James, chapter 4. And James wrote, and he said, Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, we'll spend a year there, we'll buy and sell, we'll make a profit, we'll make a whole bunch of money, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. 
For what is your life? It's even a vapor. Can I get an amen? I mean, it moves fast. That appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live in order to do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So there's nothing wrong with planning for the future, saying, Lord willing, this is what we have planned for next week or for tomorrow or for the summer and whatever that might be. But there is that realization that no one is guaranteed uh, tomorrow at all. So uh, everything can change in a day. So enjoy today. And it certainly teaches us that since nobody is guaranteed tomorrow, that no one should put off till tomorrow their salvation or putting their faith in Christ. That's why Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said today is the day of salvation. Why is today the day of salvation? Because today is the only day you and I have. We don't know that we'll have tomorrow or another opportunity to receive Christ. And so uh, the importance of this, not boasting in another day, listening to somebody preach the gospel or present the gospel and say, maybe next time, maybe there won't be a next time. And uh, that opportunity uh, will be lost. Verse 2, let another man praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. We put it this way, don't toot your own horn. So how we put that particular proverb in vernacular of our age. And so self-promotion and self-praise and boasting is very difficult to endure in another person. There's a whole lot of horn tooting today, isn't there, going on. Again, we talk about this through the book of Proverbs repeatedly, and I think we did so last week as well, uh, how bragging has just become this accepted thing that used to be really looked down upon. Oh, the guy's a braggart. He never stops talking about himself. And now they get a TV show, and we get to watch him 24 hours a day. Oh, goody. Uh, <laughs> you know, whatever. I forget what those shows are called, but there's nobody but Jesus and my wife that I want to know that much about in the whole wide world. And so the proverb teaches that a truly praiseworthy person, that that kind of person isn't going to need to toot his or her own horn. Um, They'll be noticed by other people, and other people will praise them. A stone is heavy, and sand is weighty. They really are. Um, But a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. You ever try to move a mountain of stones, say, oh, we're going to build a stone wall, move those stones from over here to over here. That's backbreaking work. Or to move wet sand, oh, that stuff weighs a lot. Even dry sand weighs a lot. But when it's wet, it's really, uh, really heavy. So if you're going to move stones, you're going to move sand, it's just hard backbreaking work, and it leaves you exhausted. And Solomon says there's something harder than all of that, something harder to endure, and that's to endure the mental and the emotional exhaustion that's caused by the provocation of a loud-mouthed fool. And those people can really weigh on you, and the idea of the book of Proverbs is, is if you're around that kind of person, and sometimes they can be a relative, they can be a classmate, they can be a co-worker, they can be what, you know. So these people do exist in life is don't take it personally. Uh, don't carry the weight of their... Just because they say something doesn't make it true. Don't carry the weight of their words. Don't let that attach to you. Don't give it any meaning 
or any weight in your life at all, just dismiss it. This is the ranting of, uh, of a fool, and I'm not going to let it uh, exhaust, uh, exhaust me related to it. Lord, I just take this that was spoken to me. I don't believe that your spirit had any part in it at all. I don't want to carry it. I commit it to you. You carry it or you do with it as you see fit and then get on about your life. We don't have to give any weight to what anyone has to say if what they're saying isn't worthy of that weight. Wrath is cruel, and it is an anger, a torrent. I mean, you, when people say things in wrath, oh, it can be very cruel. Uh, anger can just be this rush, powerful rush like water. But who is able to stand before jealousy? And this proverb speaks of the destructiveness of jealousy. Jealousy is worse, he's telling us, to endure in another person than either wrath or anger. Because wrath or anger, it comes and it goes. It's not like this constant. Jealousy is so destructive and it is so... Um, uh, such a hard thing to bear in another person because it's constant. It doesn't flash and go away. It's just there uh, all of the time, just continually gnawing at and, and working its destruction in a relationship. And I think it's important to realize that jealousy is a, um, that's a part of the old nature. That's part of the Adam nature. And uh, it's never going to lead us anywhere that we want to go. We don't want that as Christians to mark our lives. It's a sin like every other sin. And it's, it's, it is as destructive as any other sin uh, in life. And so it has to be dealt with biblically. It has to be dealt with ruthlessly. And if your life is dominated by jealousy, there's reasons for that. And there's uh, that sometimes if you're not... Uh, being able to, between you and the Lord, get an upper hand on that and move into victory related to that. God wants you free. Maybe you need a little help. And you can call the office and make an appointment with one of the pastors, and they can start to help you see what the Bible has to say about it, but then what your steps are then to walk out of it. It's a, a terribly, terribly uh, destructive sin. And like all sin, God wants us to walk free from it. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. And so this is a, um, a encouragement to openness and honesty in our personal relationships with one another. So open rebuke, he's saying, is better and it's more loving than failing to speak up in a relationship with another person and telling that person something that needs to be corrected in their life, something that's hurting them and hurting uh, other people. And so correcting another person's uh, fault, and you want to do it in the right spirit, but that's an evidence of love. I'll tell you, when, whenever the Lord speaks to me that I have to address something that is like, oh, this is really going to be hard, because this is just like in the fabric of their life, and this is going to really hurt them uh, to hear this from me. I've, I've got a coward as big as Paul Bunyan inside of me that doesn't want to get into the middle of that mess. But when the Lord calls us and we need to speak to, about something and address something, I'll tell you, it takes all 
I wouldn't do it for any other motive but love. If there's any other motive other than love, I just would stuff it. But to look at the person and say, I love this person enough that I'm going to tell them the truth. And then to realize that it's not just me toward other people, but the same thing where I would want and have had people speak into my life in ways that really set me to looking at some things and searching related to uh, to some things. And so the, the um, importance of this kind of... Uh, Openness and honesty in our relationship. Correcting a person's fault is an evidence uh, of love. No one benefits from secret love. And the idea is love that refuses to point out another person's failings or uh, is never acknowledges that they exist. It requires real uh, humi- it requires real love to address another person and, and these kind of things that are self-destructive a little bit. And, um, and then it requires real humility to receive that. It requires hum- humility to have uh, deep and meaningful personal relationships in life. And it has to be, there has to be a willingness to um, be vulnerable in those relationships. Not in every relationship maybe in life because not everybody's maybe trustworthy that way. But a person that um, is not willing and isn't willing to be teachable and hear these kind of things, they're manipulating a relationship so that it can only be one way. It can only be good. It can only be what I want to hear. It can only be like this. And that kind of person will never know a depth of relationship in their life. They will think they do, but they don't. In order to develop depth in our personal relationships with one another. There has to be a willingness to speak into one another's life and a freedom to do that and then a humility to receive that uh, to be spoken into our lives and not break off every relationship every time somebody says something hard or causes us to look honestly um, at our lives. Otherwise, we won't have a single healthy relationship in our life. Faithful are the wounds... Ooh, that doesn't sound good. This sounds like an ouch proverb. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So an enemy may work very, very hard to give the appearance of being a friend by many kisses and being everything that we think we want them to be and all of that. But it's, again, the proverb is very much like uh, verse 5. The true friend is one who is willing to run the risk of losing the relationship in order to uh, be run the risk of being considered an enemy and uh, because they're being honest with us even when they know that that's going to wound us or it's going to um, hurt us. And so beautiful de- uh, description of love. So many people are willing... Um, to watch other people drive off a cliff and destroy themselves and never say anything. And um, that's not love and that's not friendship. Friendship, again, speaks up. It says something. It is a relationship that makes both of us better for being a part of the relationship. So it has the element of being free and able and willing to speak And I'm not saying that every time you're with a person, it's like a correction thing. But there is this 
occasional is necessary thing that occurs, and then a willingness to take serious uh, what it is that uh, the person is saying. Again, don't ever shun or stop talking to a person who has done this for you. They've done one of the hardest things and the riskiest things that they can possibly do. Sometimes people send me letters. I don't get a, I, I don't, um, letters that are uh, maybe corrective or something like that. And when I say sometimes, it's actually quite rare. People are very affirming in this body because otherwise I just call them up and I read them the riot act and tell them to never come back here again. And say hi to Garth when you go to Shelter Cove. <laughs> pastor Garth is a pastor over there, and he was on staff here. I got to see him yesterday, and I thank my God upon every remembrance uh, of him. But when people do, and it's every in a great while, somebody will send something to me. And as, as long as they'll sign it and they run that risk, you know, they're, running, they're taking a risk there on that. I'll tell you, I take everything that anybody wants to say. I get on my knees and I'll take it before the Lord. And I say, Lord, what do you want to speak to me here? Someone has really taken a big risk and hard thing for them to do that to a pastor and to their pastor. And uh, so you realize there's some love behind here. Not all of them are that loving. But um, when they're done in the right spirit, it's, a, it's powerful stuff, and it's needed stuff because we've all got our blind spots. Verse 7, a satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. And this uh, proverb has the idea of those who are full, they don't appreciate what they have, while the person who is hungry uh, Everything tastes good to them. They appreciate any food that's put in front of them. But the idea is that it doesn't just relate to food. Um, it relates to material blessings and spiritual blessings in our life as well. And so the proverb uh, really shines a light on the tendency that's in all of us, and that is we can so readily come to a place where we take our blessings for granted and we lose a sense of thankfulness for um, what we have. And it's, a, it's so important as a Christian and before the Lord to say, Lord, I never want to lose a spirit of gratitude concerning everything you do in my life. I never want to stop noticing the big things. I never want to stop noticing uh, the little things. I want to appreciate all of it. I just don't want to get fat and sassy spiritually and spoiled spiritually. And the children of Israel did, and it's, and it's not just the world. It's, it's within the church that it can happen. And to maintain that kind of thankfulness and that kind of appreciation uh, for everything. A grateful person is a very attractive person, not only to other people, but very attractive uh, to God as, uh, as well. And so uh, enjoying the blessings. You know, I, in, you know, you carry it over not just in terms of material things or food or what, but on the spiritual side of things. You know, through the years, I've... Um, I think just, for example, with the worship teams that lead us in worship every week, and I sit and I worship the Lord, and I just thank the Lord for them. And I, because I don't know, um, I mean, how long will we have any of them? 
I mean, could, God could send all of them to um, Zimbabwe or South Africa tomorrow or what. But all these things that we just can come to take uh, so easily for granted and to realize, no, Lord, this is a blessing. Tonight we have a blessing with you. Tonight, you know, we've got this. Thank you for blessing us the way that you do. Thank you for my home fellowship uh, leader. Thank you for the women's Bible study uh, leader that I have. And to really appreciate all of these blessings. And um, it's, again, very, very attractive. And it makes life uh, twice the blessing because... When, with, with thanksgiving, we enjoy the blessing the first time, but that we enjoy it a second time when we thank God for it. So it's the way to, to live. Verse 8, like a bird that wanders from its nest, and the idea is it's mama bird and she's leaving her responsibility, but it can refer to papa bird too. I don't know how all that works. I'm not Dr. Doolittle. I haven't talked these things over with the animal or the animal kingdom, but... It's talking about somebody leaving their position of responsibility. Like a bird that wanders from its home is a man who wanders from his place. And so here's a warning, interesting warning, against wanderlust. And there are people who are very smitten by wanderlust. They're a restless person. They're always going all over the place. They move from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And... and, uh, Here's a person that's wandering from uh, their place, from their home, where they should be, and they should be spending their life and their time building something solid and lasting there in that relationship and in that family. And uh, just as a bird who wanders from its nest uh, too early can bring hardship and danger into its life, uh, the proverb tells us that so too the wanderer does the same. We think about the prodigal son, prodigal son number one, uh, who took his father's riches and went off and he wandered and thought life was so great out there and this, you know, dad is such a, you know, and this Christian living is, you know, such a dead end and such a terrible way to live and the whole world's out there waiting for me. Yeah, they are. So they can strip you of your money. They're on the phone every day in Nigeria trying to get through and spam and, and they're not alone. They're all over the whole wide world. And so the proverb teaches us to put, some, put down some stakes, settle down. If you, if you know that about yourself, that you're a person that's given to this wanderlust, um, the proverb speaks and says, Put down some stakes, settle down, build a life. You think about how many husbands and wives today, they abandon their families in the search of some excitement that they think that they're missing out on. And they come to learn the hard way after they've thrown away everything that's valuable in life, really, uh, that they were... Uh, what they were looking for was right under their noses and just the ordinary of life, the daily of life, but they, they didn't have the capacity to appreciate it. And when you come to the end of a life of wandering, you realize that virtually nothing that you saw and nothing that you experienced compares with having stayed home and found a field somewhere in the middle of summer, laid down in your back on some grass, and just looked up and watched the clouds go by, and guess what shape they remind you of. I mean, nobody lives, nobody's lived life, nobody's had a childhood that hasn't included something like that. 
or sitting by a stream and watching the water just go by, not for two minutes, take a picture and be on your way and post it on Facebook, but to really sit by a stream for a few hours sometime in life and just watch that flow of a river and throw sticks in there and watch where it gets caught and where it doesn't get caught and the dips that it goes through and just releasing it. I mean, that's where life is found. It's just found in these ordinary kind of things. It's, it's not found at the base of the Eiffel Tower or at Notre Dame. I'm picking on France now, but you could, or Big Ben or wherever it, it might, uh, might be. It's just spent, it's time spent with family, it's time spent uh, in church, it's time spent around the things of the Lord. I remember I was at a pastor's conference many, many, many years ago now, and um, somebody got up and they sang the hymn, uh, Be Thou My Shepherd. And this was kind of back in the days where, you know, when the whole kind of Jesus movement started and Everything, all the choruses came out, and it was like nobody was doing hymns forever. Nobody was doing hymns. And uh, so hymns had a stigma for a while. And hymns have made a comeback now in recent years, thankfully, because all of these songs are so, they're complimentary. And one of the beefs that people had with hymns was that it is, it speaks about God, but it doesn't let you speak to God. Well, you know, that's a valid observation. But there's something about singing about God that can provoke worship in you every bit as much as something that allows you to speak directly to God in terms of what the words are in a song. So they kind of got put on a shelf for a while. And so I heard this song, Be Thou My Shepherd, and, um, and I, either, I either hadn't heard it before or I hadn't heard it in a long, long time. And it, and it really moved me. It was a beautiful anointing on that on that. Um, uh, that that worship as it went forth. And I found a friend who was a pastor, and I said, hey, where can I get a recording of that? And he said, he said, well, you want to know where the best recording is that, uh, that I found? I, I said, yeah. He said, well, it's secular. I said, well, tell me anyway. And he said, it's Van Morrison. And Van Morrison uh, uh, recorded Be Thou My Shepherd in a, a, a double CD set that he had on, that came out called Hymns to the Silence, and it was kind of Van Morrison's spiritual search. It's filled with spiritual songs. Very interesting in, in some respects. And one of the cuts in the song, in that, in, um, on those CDs, is a song called Ordinary Life. And uh, it's interesting that he chose that song to add in his search. He's a searching person. And I don't know that he's come to know the Lord yet, but he has a song called Ordinary Life there in the, uh, in, in the CDs. And he chose to re- record it. Now he's later on in life. And I'm convinced he probably did that because he discovered after having literally the whole world at his feet, now for decades, and uh, that the greatest blessings in life are found just in the rhythm of an ordinary life. And there's a line in that song that says, Ordinary life, be my rock in times of trouble. Get me back on the earth, put my feet on the ground. And there are some people who are, um, we are just from Adam and Eve. We're unstable. 
We're emotionally unstable, mentally unstable, you know, unstable in a lot of ways. And then, and then trying to find the satisfaction all over the place, everywhere but where I am. And that song and this proverb encourages a person to just come right back into um, everyday, uh, ordinary life. It's found in family. It's found in relationships. It's found in church. It's found in the things of the Lord. You don't have to go to the other side of the world uh, in order to um, experience what life is really about. And so all of that has something to say really to the wanderer or the person who is uh, stricken by wanderlust. And of course we get into it, the next book of the Bible we get into in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, what, talk about a guy smitten by wanderlust and everything else. And, uh, and then what does he do? He comes to the end of his life. He'd been raised in the things of the Lord comes to the end of his life, he'd been here, he'd been there, he shipped in monkeys and apes and he shipped in ivory and all of the, he makes the throne made of a solid ivory and he's got this and he's learning this and and he gets to the end of his life and basically he in, in essence admits what I was looking for was right under my nose all my life. He said, here's the end of the matter. Obey God. Keep his commandments. Walk with God. And so he takes this decades, decades, decades long journey out there to find the meaning of life independent of what he had been raised in and came back and said it was all right there if I'd only had the capacity to appreciate it. You know, a proverb like that can save a lot of people, uh, not just decades, but their entire life from wasting their time um, these things are found in the things of the Lord. Ointment and perfume delight the heart. So they're refreshing to the body. That's why they sell uh, so much of that kind of stuff. Even they have now they have lines of it for men and everything and uh, stuff. So uh, women and men. And the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. So these ointments and perfumes, they're refreshing to the body. And so too the kind of loving counsel and advice of a friend makes you feel better inside, in our hearts, our minds, and in our souls. Do not forsake your friend or your father's friend, nor go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother who lives in Ohio or, or wherever, far away. Nothing against Ohio. So this proverb is, uh, praises friendship and the importance of cherishing uh, old friendships, uh, cherishing friends of the family. It isn't denigrating any, in any way family relationships and saying friendships are better than family or anything like that. It's simply saying that in a time of trouble, a friendly neighbor who's nearby can be of more help to us than a brother who lives a great distance away. And so the point is stay attentive to your relationships. Stay attentive to the relationships in your life. Keep them strong. Keep them healthy. We never know when we're going to need them, and we never know when they're going to need us. I'll tell you one fact of the matter about the last days, and we're living in the last days. I don't know how long the last days are, but I know we're in the last days because Israel is in the land. That's what the Bible says will be one of the marks of the last days. We're going to need each other as Christians like we have never dreamed that we could ever need one another as Christians. 
That is coming. This individualism in the United States, it nurtures it. It has a good side to it, has a negative side to it. But a lot of what we learn in our culture is um, fights against what God wants the body of Christ to be. And we're going to need our relationships with one another. We're going to need healthy relationships uh, with one another. And uh, God is going to continue to develop that in all of our lives. And this proverb uh, commends that. My son, be wise and make my heart glad. So this is a father, a mother uh, speaking to his son. My son, be wise and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. And the idea is the man who attacks him or reproaches him for being a Christian parent, for raising his children in this horrible, horrible way known as being uh, nurtured and and, and raised in the the things of the Lord. And so a child who grows up wise, that child is not just a reflection on themselves, they're a reflection on their parents, they're a reflection on the wisdom of the parents to raise them in God's uh, way and, and uh, that the parents were wise in training them in this way. And what it does is it protects godly parents who are more and more looked down on in the culture or, or even by friends or by family members. And look, at your, look how you're raising that child and the things of the Lord and look how strict it is and look at what they're messing out on and all of this kind of stuff. And, and so people that are raising their kids in the Lord, they get a lot of grief and pressure from a lot of different directions. But when that child grows up, and honors the parents by living the life that they were raised in, that is its own voice of rebuke against these accusations that are made against godly uh, parents. And that kind of thing uh, needs to happen. And this is why um, one of the many, many disastrous consequences of a son or a daughter who's been raised uh, God's way and then they backslide and they reject their upbringing and they slander their parents for having raised them in the things of the Lord and, and this kind of thing, it wrongly confirms in the hearts of those who oppose Christianity and hate Christianity that it's a terrible thing to impose upon uh, children. And so it's, a, it, it's, it's good for young people to realize that what you do with your adult life is not just a reflection on you. It's a reflection on your parents. It's a reflection upon God. And you don't want to supply the enemies of God and the enemies of Christ with um, that kind of fodder to further attack Christianity or uh, to try and slander it in any way. And this kind of stuff is absolutely epidemic among uh, Christians today, and it's heartbreaking. A prudent man foresees evil and he hides himself and the simple pass on and they are punished. So this is identical to chapter 22, verse 3. And, of course, uh, the most important seeing trouble afar off and hiding myself from it has to do with the coming judgment, putting my faith 
in the Lord and uh, being prepared for eternity. Verse 13, take the garment of him who is a surety for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he is a surety for a seductress. And again, we looked at that in chapter 20, verse 16. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it'll be counted as a curse to him. Good morning! At four in the morning, you're the greatest roommate a guy could ever have. Let me tell you my top ten reasons for why I think you're fabulous. Well, at four in the morning, he may not want to hear. He may value sleep more at that moment than your praises. So the idea is to be appropriate and our timing and sensitive in our timing and even doing a good thing like praising another person. A continual dripping on a very rainy day. This woman has got to repent. Please, she has got to repent. But you know, Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines. He deserved every bit of it. But you got a leak in your house on a rainy day and it drips and it drips and it drips and you can't go up there and mess with it while it's raining. You gotta wait till the rain stops in order to address it. So a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman, a woman who likes to fight, they're both alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. So a quarrelsome woman likened to the continual drip, 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 drip of water through the roof on a rainy day. Why? Because they both drive you crazy. I'm not saying he's not, we could say the same thing about men, but I mean that this is what's here is, is the women. It just gets on your nerves. You just don't know when it's going to stop. When is the storm going to stop? When is this going to end? And they drive you crazy, but you can't stop it. You have no hope of relief because you can't fix uh, that kind of a woman any more than you can, uh, as Solomon writes, uh, stop the wind or pick up a handful of oil. So again, another warning against being a contentious uh, woman. Uh, so, uh, verse 17, we move happily from that. Uh, things God will tell us that sometimes uh, your husbands won't tell you. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. So years ago, you know, you used to watch, you could see ads or like a Norman Rockwell picture at the Thanksgiving picture. You know, and, uh, and, or lots of things like that. They'd have the turkey that would be there, or, you know, whatever it might be. And the guy would, the head of the household, the dad, he'd have the knife to carve the turkey, and then he would have some kind of a sharpening, you know, instrument that probably has a real name for it. And you'd see him, and he'd be sharpening the, the knife in order to cut the turkey, or the roast beef, or the tofu, uh, depending on your background on things. And, and between the two of them going up against one another, the knife would end up being sharper. And fellowship is like that. Christian fellowship is uh, very, very much uh, 
like that. And it's a beautiful proverb that just speaks about how our interaction with one another, our coming into contact with one another is, you know, it makes us both uh, uh, sharper. And, it, and we leave the conversation with one another with our countenance. It has so affected us inwardly that even our face, our countenance is brightened and changed. And one of the greatest experiences in life is to be in a conversation with another Christian related to um, the Golden State Warriors. No. No, that that isn't it, is it? To be in conversation about something related to the Lord. Maybe something one of them has read and there's a question about it. Have you ever thought about this? Or I was reading this and, you know, I don't know what, but this is what the Lord ministered to me. And maybe you've got maybe two people, maybe two, three, four people, and they start to talk about this kind of stuff. And as that conversation is going on, there's a spiritual sharpening that's happening related to that conversation. And then a funny thing happens more often than not. Somewhere in the course of the conversation, God joins in. And you realize that, wow, this is more than just our collective wisdom addressing this passage or this situation. But now God is really giving wisdom through some of the people that are speaking here. And you walk away from that conversation and you say, I wish I had taken notes. Or you go to your car and you write all of those things down because you say, I never saw that in that passage before. And it's there and it's beautiful. And it's just what happens in Christian uh, fellowship and the blessing uh, that it is as we interact with one another. This is why people who say, well, I don't really go to church and I don't hang around with Christians. I just go up to Yosemite a lot. And Well, you're not going to get that interaction with the daisies and the popsy, poppies and the different kind of things like that. We need to be in fellowship with one another because we need to be sharpened. Uh, th- there's, um, I-, I would venture to guess I don't know what your experience is with people here, but after after church services or before or whenever or home fellowships or whatever might be going on, and you talk with another Christian uh, about the things of the Lord, I mean, every time we walk away better for that. I mean, when it's a sincere kind of conversation that's going on, Christian fellowship, what the Holy Spirit brings out of that is wonderful. Whoever keeps the fig tree will eat its fruit, and so he who waits on his master will be honored. Again, hard work and faithfulness, it leads to blessing and reward, uh, whether it's in agriculture or in working hard for an employer in some other field. So another encouragement to industriousness, and of course, the highest application is to our service to the Lord. As we serve the Lord in this kind of way, there is honor at the end of that service. As in water, uh, as in water, face reflects, reflects face, kind of the ancient mirror. So a man's heart reveals the man. And so water reflects the face that looks down into that water. And in the same way, we know, <clears throat> excuse me, what we really are by looking into our heart, not the appearances we give on the outside, but. Uh, what we are inside of our hearts. So this uh, honest study of the heart, looking at the heart, this is who I really am, not what I'm presenting myself to be, will, of course, reveal every single, expose every one of us to be sinners 
in need of, uh, of a Savior, which is a, a wonderful thing to have happen when it brings us to him. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. So death and hell, they're never satisfied. They always want more, more people, always more coming in. The Bible teaches that hell is always on a continual expansion program of just making room for more people coming into the wrong side of eternity. And um, so death and hell, they're never, ever satisfied. And in the same way, the covetous eyes of a man can never be satisfied with material things. We'll always want more. And covetousness is that life-dominating desire for more of, of material things. And that covetousness will never be satisfied with more. It will just feed the fuel for even more because covetousness is, uh, it, it, you know, the, the worship of anything other than God, which is idolatry and covetousness. Um, all that does is it just makes us hungry for more, and it, it's just a dead-end uh, dead end street. It can never satisfy, and so it's more and more and more and more until I finally come to know the Lord, and I realize life is not found in the abundance of the possessions a man possesses, as uh, Jesus taught, but it's found in a relationship with God and then whatever God wants to add materially uh, to that relationship. So a wonderful warning against covetousness. Look at the nation that we live in, the, the impact of just this one proverb and how many people we know they're on that treadmill they got this, they bought this, and then they thought that would satisfy, and then now they want to buy this thing and this thing and this thing, and there's this whole idea that if I just get a little bit more, then finally that hunger and that desire for more will be gone. And, of course, what we know from the Bible and we know from Christian, as a Christian is they are trying to satisfy a spiritual need with a physical thing. And you can never satisfy a spiritual need with a physical thing. It will never do that. What that kind of person is doing is looking for a relationship with God, and they don't even know that they're looking for it, but they're looking for it in the wrong place. And if that's you tonight, get off of the treadmill. Hey, you're keeping the economy of the United States going, as hobbling along as it is, but it's really no way uh, to live. We'll stop there tonight, and we'll ask the worship team to come forward and and uh, lead us to just a little bit of worship tonight as we allow these Proverbs to kind of sink in or just to worship the Lord a little bit more together in this fellowship before we head out into a new uh, work week and serving the Lord and living for Him uh, in all that lies out ahead of us.